Welcome back to another episode of Curbside Consults, where we break down the practice-changing research from the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Angela Chen, one of this year's NEJM Editorial Fellows. Now, many of you would have by now heard about all these new classes of medications used to treat type 2 diabetes, and particularly the uh, excitement around their cardiovascular benefits. So in today's episode, we'll be taking a deeper dive into the primary studies and answer some practical questions as well. Cardiovascular disease is a leading cause of mortality and morbidity in patients with diabetes. In 2017 alone, the cost of cardiovascular complications related to diabetes was $37.3 billion, and that was only in the United States. So it makes sense that the medications used to treat type 2 diabetes should also be evaluated for their potential cardiovascular benefits. What some of our listeners may not know is that this wasn't always the case. It was not always compulsory to evaluate for the cardiovascular outcome in diabetes medication trials. Traditionally, we've relied on measures of glycemic efficacy such as HbA1c. The push to assess cardiovascular outcomes was started by the FDA in 2008 and occurred in response to controversies related to rosiglitazone, a thiazolidinodione. Studies including a meta-analysis published in the journal showed a signal of increased myocardial infarction risk in patients who had been randomised to receive rosiglitazone. So since that time and since those concerns, cardiovascular outcomes have been evaluated in all medications used to treat type 2 diabetes. In today's podcast, we will take a deeper dive into the literature to try to understand what are these new type 2 diabetes drug classes, to give a brief overview of their individual mechanisms of actions, and also to understand what the data from the randomised controlled trials have shown in terms of cardiovascular outcomes and to provide a practical approach for things such as how to include these drugs in day-to-day patient management and what to do in hospital if you're looking after a patient using these medications. So joining uh, in discussion today is Dr. Marie McDonnell. She is a endocrinologist and chief of diabetes and the director of the diabetes program at the Brigham and Women's Hospital. Dr. McDonnell is also a lecturer in medicine at Harvard Medical School and we're very pleased to have her here today. Welcome to the show, Marie. Thank you, Angela. Nice to be here. So I'm just going to uh, crack on and start. There are two drug classes that have been demonstrated to show some cardiovascular benefit, the sodium glucose co-transporter 2 inhibitors, the SGLT2s, and the glucagon-like peptide 1 agonist, GLP-1 agonists. Marie, can you tell us a little bit more about each class of medication? Sure, sure. Um, So the SGLT2 inhibitors, we'll start there. Uh, nicely, the name of this uh, receptor inhibitor tells us what it does. So it, it helps in the kidney and the renal tubules to transport glucose and sodium together. Uh, the idea, I think, evolutionarily behind this receptor is to allow the body to, to hold on to glucose appropriately in sodium, but also to, to let it go. Um, and it's important, we've learned in um, maintaining normal glucose for the kidney to be able to um, excrete glucose. So we call that glycosuria. And uh, when I was in medical school, that was something that you should avoid. Yeah, of course. Uh, and it was, in fact, and it still is, an important sign and symptom of diabetes because hyperglycemia does allow the SGLT2 transporter to transport more glucose into the urine uh, for excretion. Um, now, of course, uh, with the development of drugs that we've seen, um, you know, since the 1990s, we've seen um, a massive development, and now we have 10 classes of uh, drugs. 
The glucagon-like peptide one agonists are uh, agents that take advantage of normal physiology, similar to the SGLT2s, except uh, they're agonists instead of inhibitors. And and to activate the receptors of this peptide that we all produce normally, it's secreted uh, mainly by the cells in the gut. Um, and the, the peptide works on the pancreas and the liver and probably other cells, including the brain. Oh, so, yeah, so, yeah, so it helps to increase insulin secretion, but more yep. so, and more importantly, um, effective and efficient insulin secretion. Okay. Um, so uh, the way they're taken, they're very different. The SGLT2 inhibitors are pills. Yeah. They're tablets yep. you take once a day. Okay. And the GLP-1 agonists are injectables, okay. just like insulin, yep. but they can be taken once daily. Uh, there's actually a twice-daily agent. Oh, wow. Or weekly. Okay. And so we may easy. see monthly. We might oh. see depot drugs, uh, wow. but they're still yeah. on, uh, in, in testing. Cool. So. so let's talk about these cardiovascular outcome studies, starting with the SGLT2 inhibitors. I remember um, when EMPA read the study about empagliflozin came out in 2015. I remember my attending saying at the time that actually the trial basically had received a standing ovation at <laughs> the American Diabetes That's Association, right. which sounded very... Um, absurd to me but that was the degree of excitement associated with it can you tell us a bit about why this was the reaction and the importance of these trial results sure and you said it really well in the beginning Angela you know before this trial we really thought of diabetes as um, and the effect- effectiveness of drugs in terms of the surrogate marker, which is mm-hmm. the A1C and glucose control, when the cardiologists always were looking at us saying, guys, um, it's really about protecting yeah. the patient from cardiovascular disease, and yeah. that's because that's why they are dying. Yeah. So um, we kind of had that relationship for a long time, and I would say, uh, despite the fact that uh, endocrinologists understood that, we, we felt like we didn't have the right tools yeah. in our yeah. toolbox to prevent that devastating stroke or heart yeah. attack. Yeah. Um, so here we are with the empagliflozin um, study result, the Empareg, where um, it was a randomized trial. Yeah. Uh, it was about 7,000 patients, mm-hmm. um, and they looked out, which is important, um, about four years. Okay. And, yeah. and the the goal of the study was to show safety of yeah. the drug, but yeah. or beyond safety, the safety was proven, but it was more about um, in a cardiovascular population, yeah. is it safe? Yeah. Uh, so it was almost uh, the goal was to show that it was non inferior from yeah. a safety perspective. Yeah. So lo and behold, mm. you know, within three or six months, we see a separation of the group. Yeah. Right. In terms yeah. of um, cardiovascular outcomes, yeah. and and it was statistically significant, uh, where we saw a fourteen percent. Re- reduction in risk in the the overall outcome, which is that combined mm. major adverse cardiac yeah. event outcome. Yeah. But when they, they drilled it down and looked at heart failure, yeah. uh, there was a significant, it was about 40% reduction in yeah. risk of being hospitalized yeah. for heart failure. Yeah. And the main point, the real important thing was that they actually looked at a group of people you said with pre-existing cardiovascular disease, which is something that is very commonplace in patients with diabetes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that's important because when we look at the other studies, we have to think about the different results and they yeah. depend in part on the population studied. Yeah. Keep in mind that it takes millions, billions yeah. maybe of dollars yeah. sometimes we've seen, but millions of dollars to, to run these trials. Yeah. And the, the, they need to 
um, be efficient, as efficient as possible to answer yeah. the question, and that, that we do that in trial design yeah. by choosing a population that is likely to have events yeah. Yeah, in the course. time frame in the shortest time frame as yeah, possible. Yeah, yeah. So that was one of the reasons they, they chose that group, but the other was because the FDA mandated okay. that. And then since then, since uh, publication of Empereg in 2015, there have been two additional SGLT2 inhibitor trials that have been published. So Canvas and Canvasar regarding canagliflozin, which came out in 2017, and now Declare Timmy, which was reported on dapagliflozin and published in the journal in print just this January in 2019. Mm-hmm. Um, can you summarize the findings of these trials for us mm-hmm. as well, please? Yeah. Sure, sure. Um, so the Canvas study was designed pretty similarly to the Empereg study. Mm-hmm. Um, it had uh, more patients, but okay. there were uh, somewhat fewer percent. Um, there was there were fewer patients with pre-existing heart disease, mm-hmm. and that's probably important when we look at the outcome. Uh, the 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 outcome of the Canvas study did was positive. Mm-hmm. We showed. Um, they were able to show overall the the major adverse cardiac cardiac events mm-hmm. rate mm-hmm. was lower, um, not as as uh, a little bit lackluster compared to Empereg, uh-huh. so it wasn't as dramatic, uh, and also they they were unable to show a difference in cardiovascular death. Okay, I see. Okay, and yeah. so Canvas was a little bit less of uh, an excitement. I guess I, I think it still got an ovation. Yeah. Um, now, what we saw with Canvas that was interesting, though, was a very consistent finding that, that hospitalization due to heart failure yep. was reduced. Yeah. We also, and, and I we can discuss further, um, saw, again, this improvement in the worsening of nephropathy. Yeah. Yeah. So patients had a slower progression yeah. to kidney disease. So we were happy to see that. Yeah. Um, now, there were some other findings on adverse events we can talk about yeah. a little bit later because that becomes the highlight now of the CANVAS study. Okay. But let me go on to the DECLARE for a moment. Yeah. The DECLARE study with dapagliflozin, uh, I think, took the daring step of including a population that, that, was, that had a far fewer um, number of patients with cardiovascular disease. Okay, how interesting, compared to Canvas and to Empereg. Right, so, exactly. Yeah, okay. and, and they did this so that they could potentially identify a um, really a disease modifier in, yeah. for patients with uh, preclinical heart disease. Yeah. Um, it was an important thing to do, but unfortunately, even though they randomized 17,000 okay. individuals, yeah. they didn't see... The, um, the they didn't meet their primary outcome. Okay. Uh, what they did find again, uh, we're happy to see a reduction in hospitalization with heart yeah. failure, and it, it makes sense to talk about that for a second because yeah. um, these patients were not none of them in, in the Declare, the Canvas, the Empereg. They weren't selected for having heart failure yeah. at baseline. In fact, baseline heart failure was was low. Okay. But we're seeing this uh, reduction in hospitalization for heart failure. Yeah. So clearly there's some subclinical heart disease yeah. that we as clinicians need to be aware of. Yeah. Um, and hopefully we'll get some guidelines around that. And that's actually, I think, quite an important um, point to make to our listeners because a lot of the um, initial uh, positive reaction to all of these trials is surrounding the outcome of there being a reduction in heart failure hospitalizations when in reality that wasn't a primary outcome that was a specific target 
I, I guess it raises as many questions as it does <laughs> as answers, it answers in that sort of situation. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was disappointing. I think to to the trialists or to the or to the company perhaps yeah. that it was a secondary outcome that they found. But what was so critical for our academic community and for yeah. our patients was that it was a consistent finding. So yeah. we really now know what to do. Yeah. Yeah. With these medicines, I think. So I guess with that, I wondered: Do we really think that is a true signal? And moving forward, would that be something that you would foresee is going to go into guidelines in terms of treatment of these sorts of patients? For sure. And we already see even the American Diabetes Association has um, revamped their entire um, clinical algorithm for treatment of diabetes using medications to, um, to, to advise clinicians to decide, look at the patient in front of you, does this patient have heart disease? Yes or yeah. no? And what type of heart disease? Yeah, in fact, absolutely. Yeah, which um, we can get into more when we talk about yeah. the GLP one receptor. No, agonists. absolutely. Um, um, with these SGLT two inhibitors, you had mentioned that there was a slowing in their progression of their renal disease. Mm-hmm. I think the only other medication class prior to this that had shown some of this was the ACE inhibitors, the ARBs. So, and you know, renal disease burden is a huge complication mm-hmm. in diabetes. So can you tell us a little bit about those findings in sure. these studies? Yes, great. And and I would add to your point about um, the ACE inhibitors that I think you could argue we had evidence also that insulin and mm-hmm. sulfonylureas mm-hmm. Yeah. did reduce the uh, worsening of nephropathy. We saw that in the UKPDS uh, for type 2 yeah. and insulin and, and uh, sulfonylureas. Yeah. but. But and then DCCT. But I think what your point is is that um, this was an unexpected result yeah. in a trial that was not uh, seeking to control glucose, yeah. and so the impact I think of that is pretty great. You know, these this is a condition that we many patients fear. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do know that the rates of end stage renal disease have reduced dramatically around the world. Mm-hmm. Of course, there are spots around the world where glycemic control remains extremely poor and progression to end stage mm-hmm. is still a serious problem. Mm-hmm. Um, but remember that worsening nephropathy is not just about eventually developing dialysis mm-hmm. or needing dialysis. It's mm-hmm. it's also about medication adjustments as you get yeah. older, yeah. Um, not being able to... to uh, take certain drugs, of having course. adjustment. I mean, yeah, of uh, and, and then, um, you know, certainly as, as you, as people progress, they, they don't feel as well there's a quality of life mm-hmm. issue. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's a critical finding. I think it, it makes us all feel uh, certainly a lot more uh, positive about this drug class, um, keeping in mind that it's been around for several years and it's not since this trial it's really since this trial that we started to use them so now that it has been kind of four years since that original study came out um do we have a clearer idea as to why these drugs confer these cardiovascular and renal benefits or is that still something that remains to be elucidated that's a great question I, I'm going to say the answer is uh, your your ladder. I think yeah. that we we still need to elucidate mechanisms. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that the best theory thus far is a combination of the the drug being uh, the SGLT2 inhibitor being a diuretic yeah. for patients who are prone to developing volume overload, mm-hmm. uh, in addition to potentially improving the utilization of certain fuels. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. What we've learned is that the SGLT2 inhibitor does promote 
a um, mild starvation state. Yeah. And as you remember from yeah. medical school, yes. uh, that this um, <laughs> produces a an elevation in ketone levels. Yeah. We call this ketosis. Yeah. And also glucagon levels. Yeah. Now, how those two are playing a role, we don't know necessarily, but we do know the heart really has an easy time utilizing the ketone body. Okay. And, uh, as it, a fuel source. As a fuel source. Yeah. And so uh, it still prefers fat, but if you have um, more of a shift away from glucose and toward ketones, there may be a functional benefit. Uh, and then as okay. far as the nephropathy oh, goes, yeah. there's this concept that um, my nephrology friends uh, are trying to teach me, which yeah. is really hard, <laughs> sure. which is uh, tubulogramellular feedback. Okay. Um, which is like, uh, it's sort of like an endocrine axis. Okay. Um, and we do know that when glucose is dumped into the distal part of the tubule, there's yeah. some feedback okay. that might promote glomerular function. Oh, that's really interesting. It is, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, we need to learn more, don't we? Yeah, uh, well, we always <laughs> need to learn more. That's, But that's really interesting. Yeah. Um, and you also mentioned that specifically, which I guess is an important time to just remind our listeners, the SGLT2s do utilise a different fuel and some of that includes increased ketone production and that can obviously be problematic in and of itself. Ah, uh, good. I'm glad you brought that yeah. up. So ketoacidosis is um, a rare but yeah. serious complication or side effect of the SGLT2 inhibitors. Um, it's an, in essence, uh, it's it's an excess. Mm -hmm. It's that that normal process that we're seeing with mm -hmm. the ketosis driven to excess. Mm -hmm. So as you might imagine, we see this more commonly in patients who are insulin deficient. Okay. Yeah. Because uh, not to go too heavy here, but yeah. insulin insulin suppresses ketosis. Yeah, it, of it's sort of this the I'm fed signal. Yeah. Um, and type one diabetes patients have been exposed to SGLT2 mm -hmm. inhibitors. It's not FDA approved for mm -hmm. that condition, but it is effective if mm -hmm. you look at the trials that have been done. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's probably, for most patients, not worth the risk mm -hmm. of ketoacidosis. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In type twos, we see that occur, but typically in patients who've been exposed to prolonged fasting okay, um, most of the time, yep. so preparing for surgery yep. or taking the medicine in the setting of surgery, which okay. I haven't seen, but it's been reported. Okay. And then are there any other triggers or things that we should be thinking of? That's a great question. Yeah. I think uh, probably severe illness. Okay. I, what I advise my patients to do is to actually stop the medication yeah. in the setting of um, an illness that is likely to be prolonged yeah. or leads you to become dehydrated. Yeah. One of the um, the the uh, necessary um, items in the recipe for DKA mm. or diabetic ketoacidosis is dehydration. Yeah, of course. So yeah. I say it right out to my patients. If you are dehydrated, you should skip it. Yeah. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. Um, so we've covered quite a lot about the SGLT2s. Let's just move very uh, quickly over to the GLP1s. Um, several cardiovascular outcome trials have also been performed in this drug class, but only liraglutide has shown any cardiovascular benefit with the LEADER trial, which was also published in the journal. This was back in 2017. Can you tell us a little bit more about LEADER's um, outcomes? And I guess why liraglutide had that cardiovascular outcome benefit, but perhaps some of the other drugs in that class haven't mm -hmm. hit that target. 
Right. Uh, well, actually, we, we have seen um, some results come out from other drugs, mm -hmm. but they're not as strong. Mm -hmm. And in fact, one of the drugs, semaglutide, um, is really the, the uh, benefit is in stroke oh, okay. uh, yeah. versus um, classical cardiovascular disease, including mm -hmm. uh, uh, MI. Mm -hmm. But the liraglutide uh, study was certainly the, the it set up, set the stage for the future of this drug class. Yeah. By uh, with its trial, which which enrolled about nine thousand patients, so you're mm -hmm. going to see that's about the range these yeah. patients these studies are. Yeah. In um, and they f and it found uh, a reduction um, around twelve percent reduction in the risk of developing either cardiovascular to death, MI or stroke, and that mm -hmm. was heavy. Uh, leaning in the cardiovascular death part okay. of the mace. That's very interesting, isn't right. it? Right. Yeah. So really, yeah. really, it's it's that's why it's been viewed similarly to the Empereg yeah, study. Yeah, absolutely. Because we actually saw patients dying less. Yeah. Um, so dramatic. Not something that we've seen within any of our other um, diabetes-focused agents. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and and we also happily saw all-cause mortality come down, just like an Empereg, yeah. and the worsening nephropathy signal came. We saw that as well. Yeah. Now, you mentioned the other agents. So we have seen like, semaglutide. Uh, we, we have seen a, a stroke yeah. reduction, surprisingly, yeah. just yeah. stroke. Um, but not so much. The, the albiglutide, which is the Harmony study, was yeah. similar to LEADER, and we did see a reduction in MI, yeah. but not uh, death or uh, stroke. Yeah. Uh, and we still we didn't see actually any secondary outcomes, major secondary outcomes with that trial. But you're right. I think liraglutide is now the is still remains. Uh, I think the 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 drug that folks are, are paying the most attention to as far as asking the question why yeah. it had such an impact. And do we have any idea as to why it had the impact? Or right. is that also something that is to, in the to-be-determined space? <laughs> I think there's two answers to yeah. that. One is that uh, the, the liraglutide um, trial uh, in participants were very high risk, okay. uh, similar to what we yeah. saw with Emperor-Reg. Yeah. Uh, so it was the right population to identify a benefit. Yeah. Um, it's also an analog to GLP-1 yeah. um, agonists versus the exenatide, uh, which for which we saw no benefit yeah. across the board, yeah. is actually derived directly from exendin. Okay. Um, an yeah. exendin molecule, which is um, a molecule that, that we identified in the Gila monster yes. spit. Yes. Or, uh, yeah. So so you might remember that. And it's a, it actually is different. Okay. And so the question is whether oh, we really need to yeah. refine the molecule. Yeah. Um, and and the, the cross-reactivity with other GLP receptors might yeah. be relevant. Yeah. So I think we, what we we all kind of are thinking is that the GLP-1 receptor agonists, uh, at least the analogs like like uh, liraglutide, uh, are beneficial to those with with atherosclerotic heart disease. Yep. But it will take time to demonstrate that it's yep. not as an acute effect as we saw with empagliflozin yep. in heart failure. Um, and the reason why we might see that that I think people are furiously studying that there, yeah. there definitely are receptors yeah. in the heart and on the okay. endothelium. Yeah, and I think um, that's to be determined. Yeah. Um, we definitely know it has an impact on 
blood pressure, yep. Uh, yep. weight loss, yep. um, and heart rate actually comes up with these drugs. So that's quite interesting. It's surprising to yeah, hear that, that it's surprising. so good for the heart. Yeah. But it looks like we're going to open a new chapter in the textbook. I think the a point of differentiation just to make as you have alluded to is that um, we're looking at different mechanisms of heart disease almost now because we're looking at heart failure group versus atherosclerotic disease group and we've got two different classes of medications where perhaps the benefits will be seen in different cardiovascular diseases that's so to speak exactly yeah you yeah, got that it. again so if we make it a bit more clinically orientated um, and use a case we've got Brian who's a 68 year old man he's had type 2 diabetes for 10 years he initially had good glycemic control but in the last three years it's just become more difficult for him his HbA1c is now always above 9 percent and he doesn't check his blood glucose levels and he tells you as some of our patients do mm -hmm. that they don't need to check he can feel what his blood glucose <laughs> levels are um, so his kidney function is okay his EGFR is greater than 60 and he is overweight with a BMI of 29 kilos per meter squared and he hasn't yet had any cardiovascular events at all he's currently being treated on metformin two grams daily as well as a statin and an ACE inhibitor so the guidelines suggest that metformin should universally be the first line agent of choice. But with this type of patient, this type of type 2 diabetes, how would you approach treatment now? That's, that's great. So um, Brian's a pretty typical patient that we see. Mm. A couple of things that we, we need to understand about him. He does meet the criteria for being an older adult, mm -hmm. whether he likes it or not. So mm -hmm. we do yep. consider those over 65 a group where we really have to understand their functional status yep. and their cognitive function yep. and, and their longevity. Yep. Uh, it turns out cognitive function and functional status predict longevity really well. Yep. So I, I want to hear a little bit more about, um, you know, if, is he working? Is he yep. out in the garden? Is he, yep. is he truly doing yep. very well? Yeah. Uh, he probably is because yeah. I can see he doesn't have uh, he hasn't had a vascular event and yeah. and um, assuming that he's he's generally healthy let's let's proceed with uh, moving him toward a reasonable glucose target certainly yeah. below eight yeah. um, but but in his case he, he might do well under seven if we can get there okay. below without hypoglycemia yeah of course. So to do that, given he's up there in the nines, uh, yeah. I'd like to talk to him about his personal, uh, what his personal goals, yeah. if his, uh, and, and talk to him about, you know, his targets. If he's engaged and yeah. he's interested, uh, I think the best next step for him would probably be a GLP-1 receptor yeah. agonist. Yeah. And, and I say that mainly because of potency. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And he is overweight. Yeah. He's borderline obese. Yeah. The GLP-1 receptor agonist will achieve an A1C lowering around uh, up to a 1.5 percent, depending okay. on the trial you look yeah. at. Versus uh, the other cardioprotective drug, which is the SGLT2 inhibitor, isn't as potent. Yeah. Um, it, it's it's also a choice for him. In fact, yeah. if he says, I, I really can't inject DOC, yeah. I'm not ready for that, yeah. uh, we might move him along to an SGLT2 inhibitor. Yeah. And that's a really important point um, to make in terms of diabetes treatment these days because there's so many choices out there, really, and the ADA guidelines, all of them are starting to come out. It really comes down to that very patient-centered kind mm -hmm. of more mindful approach rather than it's definitely no longer a one-size-fits-all approach in land of diabetes. That's at least, right. Is it? Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Um, so, okay. So in this elderly gentleman who is a bit overweight and otherwise has 
good renal function, hasn't had a cardiovascular event yet, um, your suggestion would be a GLP-1 simply to get the weight down, to give him the maximum glycemic um, improvement for just one medication. Um, but if Brian had had a history of a recent myocardial infarction, would your approach then be different or would you go along the same path given that both these medications seem to have some effect? Right. And I think that's right. I, I might go down the same path, but I might have a little bit more data in my, um, you know, in my calculation. So if, for example, his post-MI echocardiogram yep. was um, demonstrated some cardiomyopathy yep. that may or may not be reversible, yep. I, I would feel compelled to yep. actually use an SGLT2 inhibitor. Yep. In fact, we do take that approach with our patients in our hospital who have recently had an MI. Uh, especially if they have uh, evidence of cardiomyopathy yep. on their post-MI echo. Yep. Um, so that would go into my calculation. The other would be looking a, a little bit more at his, um, his, the existence of nephropathy. Okay. Yep. I, I would say that the, the SGLT2 inhibitors are so consistently beneficial there. Yeah, of course. We might, I might push him in that direction yep. post-MI if he has microalbuminuria. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that makes absolute sense. Um, so then, um, because a lot of our listeners are residents and medical students who only tend to encounter these agents in the inpatient setting, if Brian had an MI, is then admitted to hospital 12 months later with acute cholecystitis and a plan for cholecystectomy, what would be your advice, Marie, on how uh, medication should be managed in this specific sort of setting? Okay, great. I'm first just going to quickly address the fact that uh, gallbladder disease is known to be increased in those on GLP-1 receptor agonists, and mm -hmm. and I, I think probably his cholecystitis was related in part. It could yeah. have been related to the fact that he was on a GLP-1. <laughs> darn so, it. Darn. Yeah. Um, uh, so sometimes I actually make sure I discuss that with patients, even yeah. though that's a, a, low, um, a, a low incidence side effect. Yeah. Um, but it's a, it's an important question. What we would say for in the hospital is that we don't have enough information on the use of non-insulin agents, and yeah. insulin still is the mainstay. Yeah. However, there's good data um, on the DPP-4 inhibitor yeah. drug class, which we didn't discuss, but isn't super potent probably wouldn't be useful in Brian because his diabetes coming in the door is relatively poorly controlled, yep. assuming it's it should have been better by now. Mm. Uh, but I, I suspect insulin will be the mainstay. Mm. Um, I would also say that given his prolonged, you know, relative to normal life, he has mm -hmm. a prolonged starvation state post-op. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Of course. Uh, and this is normal. Uh, and he probably came in with poor nutrition, given yep. that he may have had pain for several days. Yep. SGLT2 inhibitors really should be on hold, yep. if that's the path we went, yep. until he's eating very well. Yep. Uh, now, the going back to the GLP-1, now that he's had his gallbladder removed, yep. I'm actually enthusiastic to start it again okay. when he's ready. Yep. Uh, but not in the hospital. Yeah. So you would wait until eating and drinking and yes. well again outside of hospital. That's right. And is that your usual 
um, rule of thumb for a lot of the diabetes medications mm-hmm. that you would just wait until people are healthy and eating and mm-hmm. well enough before restarting there. Exactly. That's that's our rule of thumb. Uh, we might be a little too ginger about that yeah. uh, in some cases. I think yeah. DPP-4 inhibitors can just be continued. They're, sure. they're quite clearly safe. Yeah. Metformin. Uh, probably doesn't have to be held for the entire time. Okay. But certainly until we understand what's happening with the kidney. Okay. Of course. Yeah. Okay. Thank you a lot. So you've mentioned a few of the reasons why um, you would or you wouldn't start, Brian, on a certain type of medications. But I guess outright then, what sort of patients would you absolutely not start any of these new medications on that we're all so excited about? Right, exactly. And that's when it comes down to, you know, what's happening in the clinic when you talk to patients. Um, So I mentioned earlier that the, the CANVAS trial revealed to us that the SGLT2 inhibitors uh, could be problematic in some patients. Mm-hmm. Uh, number one, uh, and we saw amputations mm-hmm. on a higher risk of the distal toe amputations. Mm-hmm. We don't, um, we didn't see that in the other trials, yeah. but because of that finding, which yeah. was really borne out in our yeah. RCT that was yeah. beautifully done, we we do uh, withhold that medicine in patients who have active distal yep. vascular disease. So, yep. and, and I don't withhold it in people with neuropathy, rather, yep. um, because that's so prevalent, but yep. rather those who we think could be at risk. Yep. Uh, the other thing we saw is increased fractures in canicle yeah. frozen. Yeah. So, so people with osteoporosis, men and women, uh, yep. I would probably not prescribe an SGLT2 inhibitor at this okay. time. Sure. And that brings me to my female patient, yeah, who of course. is at really high risk of a uh, candidal yeast infection, a yeah, vaginal yeast yeah, infection, yeah, of course. which we think of as a, as a nuisance, or yeah. men men tend to think of it as yeah. a nuisance. Women women have a little different feeling about it sometimes, yeah. where they may have had multiple episodes and they really don't want a drug to, to do that to them. So we have yeah. to counsel them about risk benefit there. Yeah. Um, Frequent urinary infections is another, um, uh, you know, another condition where we we would probably consider a GLP one over the yeah. SGLT two because we saw that increased rate in the trials. Yep. Okay. Now the GLP one receptor agonists are interesting because we know a lot about their side effects yep. um, and understand you know how to predict them. Yeah. In the semaglutide study, sustain. Yeah. Uh, we saw f- about 40% of patients had the the nausea that yeah. we know is so prevalent. Of course, yeah, right? yeah. So we have to counsel patients. And those who have um, a history of pancreatitis, we yeah. do not prescribe because there have been signals, although it hasn't borne out very clearly. Yeah. Uh, and those um, who have GI conditions that are already associated with significant nausea, yeah. we would steer away. Okay. Yeah. Um, one last question, um, given that we've spoken about a lot of these new drugs, new trials, new models of trials. Um, what do you think is the future direction of these sorts of medications? It almost sounds like endocrinologists are becoming cardiologists. Um, <laughs> or maybe like, the other way around. Or, yeah. <laughs> so um, where do you think kind of this area is headed? And what like their uptake is already high, costs are also high, but it sounds mm-hmm. like this is a new standard of care. Is this the right mm-hmm. direction that we're all moving in? That's a, that's that's really the 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 big money question I would mm. say. Um, w- I will note that we have to consider treatment burden and in the individual patient. You know, mm-hmm. can they afford this drug? Is the is, is a side effect profile acceptable? Mm-hmm. And 
uh, if we get through that, and we often do with these drugs, mm-hmm. it's it's um, the the races to try to a- access them mm-hmm. for for the patient mm-hmm. because of the cost. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I'm hoping to see is that the um, that that we reshape the way we treat diabetes early on yeah. uh, to be target focused, meaning mm-hmm. achieving a good A1C early. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also using medicines that do not pro- promote weight gain. So yeah. patients have a much better um, position early. And, and as the disease progresses, prioritize yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the, pac- the drugs that we know actually modify yeah. the cardiovascular uh, event rate. Uh, but but really, I, I think that the, the guidelines say that exactly that now. Yeah. And uh, we as far as heeding them, we're going to need partnership from... Uh, not only clinical societies, but certainly yeah. the payers, uh, yeah, insurance course. companies, yeah. and pharmaceutical companies, yes. because if we need to open up the ability to develop generic yeah. uh, versions of the drugs, yeah. uh, which can be blocked by certain mechanisms. But I know mm-hmm. in general, industry wants to support what they do and the patients. Uh, I just think that we have to kind of push them to do yeah. that. No, that's that's a very fair point. So thanks so much, Marie, and for joining us in conversation as we take deeper dives into papers at the NEJM. I hope we've given our listeners a bit more insight into both aspects of clinical practice and a point of access to the primary literature that makes up New England Journal of Medicine. And so, by taking a deep dive into the literature around the management of type 2 diabetes and these new classes of medications associated with cardiovascular and renal benefits, what have we learnt and how has this shaped practice? Well, firstly, there are two new classes of medications available for the treatment of type 2 diabetes, the SGLT2 inhibitors and the GLP-1 agonists. Trials performed in these two drug classes were carried out in patients with established cardiovascular disease, which has shown benefits in terms of heart failure, heart failure hospitalizations, a reduction in the progression of renal disease, and potentially improvement in subclinical heart disease or subclinical heart failure for the SGLT2 class. In the GLP-1 class, we've seen a reduction in cardiovascular mortality, reductions in stroke, and a reduction in perceived atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease burden. The mechanism of how these drug classes confer their cardiovascular benefits are yet to be elucidated. Currently, it is hypothesized that switching to ketones and to fats as fuel with the SGLT2 inhibitors confers cardiac cell benefits. In the GLP-1 receptors, which are found in many tissues all throughout the body, there is some speculation that direct GLP-1 effects on endothelial cells and vasculature has some benefits. However, we need to bear in mind that these mechanisms are all currently hypotheses and need further investigation to be fully understood. And finally, in terms of choosing treatments for patients with type 2 diabetes, the important takeaway is that the approach is now very much patient-centred. Patients with clinical or echocardiogram evidence of cardiac failure or renal dysfunction should be considered for SGLT2 inhibitor use, bearing in mind the risks of ketoacidosis, urogenital yeast and fungal infections, as well as osteoporosis risk, which was seen with canagliflozin. 
Patients with atherosclerotic disease who might have an increased BMI would certainly benefit from GLP-1 agonist use. And both SGLT2 inhibitors and GLP-1 agonists should be ceased when a patient is admitted to hospital, particularly if they are fasted or in a catabolic state. And then you should consider restarting these medications when your patient is eating and drinking normally again and out of hospital. So once again, thank you for listening to this episode. Please visit our guide on diabetes at resident360.nhjm.org. I want to thank our expert today, Dr. Marie McDonald, our production team here at NHAM Resident 360, which includes Karen Buckley, Carl Simmons, Mike Tomasis, Tim Vining, Scott Williams and Kathy Stern. Also, a special thanks to Dr. Angela Castellanos and Dr. Amanda Fernandez, my co-editorial fellows at NHAM this year, and at NHAM Education Editor, O.P. Hammond-Vick. Because this is a new series and we're trying something new, we want your feedback. So please email us at resident360 at nhjm.org. Leave a message or review wherever you get your podcasts, or feel free to reach out to us via the NHAM Resident 360 website. We're also accessible via various social media sites, including Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook via the NHAM.org pages. I'm Dr. Angela Chen, Editorial Fellow at the New England Journal of Medicine. Please join us again for our next episode.